Chapter 1, Prologue. It was an unwritten rule, almost. Understood by all, for sure. For decades, possibly even a century or two, it was the guideline that was passed down within each family. No one crosses the garden wall. To be frank, no one knows why they should not cross it. There are too many rumors, too many silly tales that contradict each other for any actual history of the garden wall and its mysterious other side. What everyone does know is that it had been a part of the town ever since its founding back in the early 19th century. In the town's historical archives, little is mentioned concerning the garden wall. The town's city limits only reach the garden wall, everything else on the opposite side is either no man's land or immediately becomes the city limits for the neighboring town. Again, no one is certain. But everyone knows that it is best to keep away from the wall. The only thing that borders the wall is the eternal garden cemetery. The logic was that the dead could not climb over the wall, and those who visited the cemetery were not there to see the other side. Most of the time. In many ways, as time passed, the garden wall became invisible to the town's inhabitants. Even if they walked alongside it, no one had the intention of climbing its height of 15 feet, not usually. The municipal government made sure to attend to it in case of erosion or other damages, and occasionally people whispered about it, but otherwise, it was just a wall. Not the wall. In fact, the most people ever interacted with the wall was if they were visiting the Eternal Garden Cemetery. Considering how both were in the far outskirts, it only made sense. Visit someone's tombstone, you would inevitably glance at the wall. If you heeded your parents' advice, you would not climb the wall. You would not even acknowledge its existence. It was just another wall. But, of course, there were those who were mystified by the wall and did decide to cross it. The most well-known story that had been circulating amongst the townsfolk was that of a young man who worked at a general store and climbed the wall, never to return. He had no parents, no siblings, no distant relatives, not even a bow, so it was not as if anyone ever missed him. But he went to the top of the wall and jumped off on the other side. A few witnessed the account, and they wondered if he would ever return. He never did, although at one point, many years after his disappearance, he sent a letter to his former employer. The only words written were, everything is not what it seems, friend. From the rumors, there had been five who went beyond the stone boundary, this number included the young men, presumably the first. Four men, one woman. It was more common for people, particularly children, to begin the trek up the wall, only to stop out of cowardice and go back down. One young woman in the 1960s ascended only to sit at the top. She said there had been nothing but trees, but she was unwilling to descend to the other side and explore. She never provided an explanation why. The garden wall was supposedly under police surveillance, but no one could be so certain. And even if so, it was largely a waste of time. No one had climbed the wall in decades, and it was simply accepted that no one did climb anymore. Even the least superstitious townsfolk chose not to brave the odds and venture to the other side. Was there a reason to? The garden wall was largely a local legend, and, nearly, everyone dismissed the delusions surrounding its murky history and rumors. And so, as the townsfolk went about their lives, they remained uncertain and ignorant of what exactly occurred on that side of the wall. That is, until recently. Chapter 2, Another Day The air was abnormally chilly from mid to late October. Dry and crisp, the wind caused even more rigidness that managed to pass through Wirt's thin, wiry frame. You're going to be tall, I can tell, his mother would tell him whenever he complained about his size. Then everything will be proportional, and you won't think you look so frail. 
Wirt knew his mother was probably right, his father was a staggering six feet and four inches, and just in the past six months, Wirt had skyrocketed from a measly 5'1 to 5'5. At 15 years old, Wirt knew he had more growth spurts to look forward to by the time puberty finished with him. But on days like today, Wirt cursed his size and frame. No matter how many layers he placed upon himself, and even on an autumn day like today, he simply could not shake off the uncomfortable cold that settled within him. He crossed his arms over his chest in hopes that it would bring warmth to him. The attempt was probably futile, but he continued to keep his arms in front of him, almost as if they were a crutch when going against the wind. Wirt, came the chipper, relentless voice of his younger half-brother, Gregory. Wirt pressed on, ignoring the calls from Greg. Within seconds, however, the seven-year-old boy reached his older brother, slightly panting from running to catch up. Wirt, mom said you forgot your scarf. Greg exclaimed, holding up a long train of deep burgundy yarn. Trailing alongside Greg was one end of the scarf, skidding across the sidewalk and picking up already fallen leaves. Without a beat, Wirt snatched the scarf and tossed it around his neck in a circle, no, thank you, for Greg. He would not admit it, and definitely not to Greg, but the scarf helped ease the prickly cold. None of this would matter to Greg. Though, within seconds, he was already humming an original melody of his, bobbing his head happily in tune. In their daily walks to their respective schools, Wirt would have asked, demanded, Greg to stop humming and remain quiet. But today, Wirt let it slide. The humming, though repetitive and annoying, was miles better than the wind in Wirt's ears. Wirt turned at the corner onto the street where Greg's elementary school was situated. Okay, here you go, Wirt mumbled once they reached the sidewalk running parallel to the school. Thanks Wirt. See you later. Greg beamed as he skipped across the street. Once he reached the opposite side, he turned around to give Wirt a wave. Wirt apathetically nodded to indicate that he received the gesture. He stayed briefly to watch Greg continue towards the entrance, and then headed down the same street for an extra ten minutes before reaching his high school. It perplexed Wirt as to why the elementary and high school both started at the same time, while the middle school opened an hour later, but it was a convenient walk from his and Greg's home. And Greg was always well awake before Wirt's alarm clock even went off, but the boy was smart enough to stay out of his brother's room. Thursday morning. Not yet Friday, but late enough in the week so that the exhaustion of Mondays and Tuesdays were over. Today was not meant to be a special day in Wirt's high school career. No tests, no projects, or essays do, absolutely nothing. He would go to his classes, eat his ham and cheese sandwich along with a pack of potato chips and an apple during his lunch period, return to one more class, then head back home. No after-school clubs, no after-school friend hangouts. He would not have to pick up Greg, who was let out earlier and often went home by means of another student's parents and was babysat by the next-door neighbor. He would simply walk home, enjoy the hour or two of peace he would have until his mother or stepfather would walk in the door with a hyperactive Gregory rushing up to tell Wirt about his day. In those two hours, Wirt would do his homework. If he finished early, then it meant getting to read for pleasure, or even practice his clarinet. Once the entire household was back inside, dinner would be prepared, Wirt would do his chores, and try to get Greg to help him, though it was essentially a lost cause. They would eat, Wirt would retreat back to his room, and go to sleep no later than 10 o'clock. No, today was not meant to be a special day for Wirt. If anything, it had all the omens of a bad day, grey, dreary sky with no sliver of sunshine, frigid wind brushing past him, the possibility of rain later in the afternoon, and he forgot to bring his umbrella, just great. It did not help that in his first class of the day, 
physics, he had forgotten to finish his homework and it just so happened to be the one day that Mr. Ashby would actually grade it. His second class, European history, was better, and more interesting, except today Mrs. Clements was sick, and the substitute teacher had popped in a dry documentary about the French Revolution. The third class was Wirt's personal favorite, English. He would never admit it to anyone, but he liked the poetry units the best. He kept to himself in class, only answering questions when he was called upon, but he loved the poetry units. He also liked English because it was the only class he shared with her, Sarah, the girl whom he had known since elementary school and had romantic feelings for since he was 13. She sat two rows ahead and one column to his left, but Wirt could easily stare at the back of her head for extended periods of time until he was brought back to reality with Ms. Lovell's enthusiasm for literature. Today, as Wirt sat in his seat while other students filed into theirs before the class would officially begin, he folded his arms atop the desk and kept his eyes fixated on the edge in front of him. He let his mind go numb, completely without a single thought rolling through. Hey, Wirt, a soft feminine voice called. It startled Wirt, causing him to slightly jump, and blood to rush to his face when he saw that it was Sarah standing next to his desk. Oh, um, H-I, Sarah, he replied. W what's up? Well, I was wondering if you'd want to join a few of us after school to go to the new coffee shop on Pillar Street. I hear it's really good, and it's Thursday. You know, it's basically a second Friday. Word could feel his heart plummeting into his stomach. He did not like coffee, but that did not matter. Sarah was asking him out. Well, to join her and a few of her friends. And it was probably out of pity. Sarah was incredibly friendly, but there was no way that she was not inviting him without some inkling of he doesn't have many friends. And it probably meant that Jason Funderburker would be there, ugh, Jason Funderburker, Wirt mentally muttered. But still, this was Sarah, and she was inviting him to hang out with her friends, most of whom were nice enough anyways. You ah, uh, why yeah, that'd be great, Wirt stuttered. The bell rang just as he spoke, possibly drowning out his nervous voice. But Sarah smiled and replied with an okay, before scurrying to her seat when Ms. Lovell entered the room and immediately started discussing the current book they were reading, James Joyce's Ulysses. So, maybe it was a good day after all. Wirt did not have the same lunch period as Sarah, but he usually used the time to do homework as he ate. He attempted his physics problems, but his anticipation for the day's later events kept him from focusing properly. The rest of the day passed by surprisingly quickly, leaving Wirt wondering just exactly what he had done in his remaining classes until he met Sarah and her group of friends at the junior's parking lot. Wirt stifled a scoff when he saw Jason Funderburker in the group of five, but he ignored it when Sarah caught his sight. Hey Wirt, she said in a chorus of a few others. He held up a hand as a means of a weak wave. The journey to the coffee shop was a complete blur for Wirt as well, Sarah had sat next to him in the back of Jenny the junior's car, and she made small talk with him, how was your day? How is your brother, but Wirt was too awestruck to remember if he actually answered her questions. Before he realized, everyone was exiting the car and entering the coffee shop. Wirt scrambled out of the car and briefly sprinted to catch up with the rest. It meant being at the back of the line with Jason Funderbanker. Wirt ordered himself a small hot chocolate and took the only available seat at the table, in between Peter, one of the fraternal twins, and Jason Funderbanker. Ugh hi, Wirt continued to groan inside. He listened to them talk about their lives as he sipped his hot chocolate, pretending to be completely interested. Sarah's friends were nice, except for Jason Funderburker, who was just pompous, and Wirt liked them enough, but he was never exactly friends with any of them. 
Sarah was probably his only friend in the entire group. Ugh, yeah, it's just so boring, someone exclaimed, at this point, Wirt had not been paying attention. What do you think, Wirt, asked Sarah. Wirt snapped his attention up from his hot chocolate. About, he sheepishly asked. Ulysses. Oh. I don't know, I kind of like it. Really, asked Peter. It's so boring. Wirt shrugged. It's not entertaining and not my favorite, but I think it's okay. I kind of wish we do more of, he immediately stopped and sipped his hot chocolate. Do more of what? Sarah asked. Nothing, it's nothing, Wirt denied once he swallowed his hot chocolate. He was not about to admit in front of Sarah and her friends, and definitely not Jason Funderburker, that he wanted to study more poetry. Everyone continued on to other topics, forgetting Wirt's comments. Wirt finished his hot chocolate before everyone else finished their drinks, and he was tempted to buy more so that he could keep himself occupied while he sat with the group. But his lack of cash prevented him from doing so, and so he kept his hands in his lap and actually looked at whoever was speaking. He liked watching Sarah speak. She was just so pretty, with her dark curly hair and her lovely dark skin. For such a dreary, cloudy day, she quite literally was a ray of sunshine with her bright daffodil yellow sweater. And her voice was placid and buttery, still, to hear her tender taken breath slash and so live ever, or else swoon to death. She naturally smiled as she spoke. Once again, Wirt lost track of what was happening until he consciously took a look at his wristwatch. 3.17. What time is it? Sarah asked. Wirt repeated the time to her. Oh, I better head out now, she said as she stood up. I promised I would do some babysitting for the Hennessies at four. The Hennessies. Wirt's stomach twisted. They live on my street. I can go with you, if you don't know the way. Sarah gave him a grin of gratitude. That'd be great, thanks Wirt. She tossed away her coffee cup and said farewell to her friends. Wirt followed suit, glad to shake off Jason Funderburker. Just him and Sarah, walking together with no one else getting in the way. When the afternoon wind hit him in the face, however, so did the realization. Just him and Sarah, walking together with no one else getting in the way. The last time something like this happened was once in gym class freshman year, when Sarah's friend was absent and so she chose to walk with Wirt around the track during the free time they had. Take the lead, Captain. Sarah joked, saluting Wirt. He chuckled to himself, but the nervousness prevented him from making a witty remark. T there's a shortcut I sometimes take when I go on walks, Wirt mumbled as he began walking. Sarah stood next to him, her arm occasionally brushing past his. As long as it gets me to the Hennessy's by four. As Wirt led Sarah along his shortcut, he found talking to her to be less challenging than he anticipated. She told him about how she was already starting to look into colleges, and how much she wanted to go to an out-of-state university. Wirt had not even thought of applying to college yet, that still seemed like a distant future, and he was not even sure he wanted to do an extra four years of school. But he listened to Sarah's ideas and commented once in a while. And I know that it's more expensive to do an out-of-state public school, but, oh, look, it's the garden wall. Wirt looked up to see where Sarah was pointing. Standing in its glory was the stone wall, painted white with red at the top. He rarely took the shortcut, but he never once took a second thought to the garden wall ahead of them. Are you sure this is a shortcut? I mean, this is the garden wall after all, and that's kind of out of the way. Wirt knew she was only joking, but he did not want her to get in trouble if she were late for babysitting. 
I promise we'll get to my street in about 10 more minutes. So, have you ever tried? Tried what? To climb the wall, silly, Sarah clarified. Wirt shook his head. No. I don't even climb trees. The last time he climbed a tree, he sprained his left arm. That was the end of his tree climbing career. I have. Wirt raised an eyebrow. You tried to climb the wall. Sometime in the seventh grade. Jenny dared me to cross it and then immediately come back, but I barely made it to the top. Just a quick peek over the wall. It really is just a bunch of trees on the other side. Oh, was all Wirt could really say. He was one of the many who never once bothered to even come close to the wall, less out of fear and suspicion, more out of sheer apathy. Also, it was a pretty high wall. I've always kind of wanted to do it again, though. Actually cross it and then come back, just to say I've done it, you know. Sarah continued. But I don't. No, I'm still kind of chicken to do it. And no one else I know has done it. Not even Jenny, who made that stupid dare. But I'm still really curious. It's just that no one is really brave enough to do it. You'd think that in today's day and age we wouldn't be so superstitious about old tales that have probably been exaggerated over time, but for some reason we're all still kind of afraid of the wall. Wirt was not sure what to say after that, but it would not matter. They reached the Hennessy's, and they bid farewell before Wirt headed back to his house. His stepfather and Greg were there. Wirt. Greg hollered as he ran to his brother as soon as Wirt opened the door. Guess what I did today? He did not wait for a response. I learned about clouds, Wirt. Clouds. That's great, Greg, Wirt strode past Greg and headed straight for his room. Hi, John, he mumbled to his stepfather in the dining room. He tossed his backpack onto his desk chair and crashed onto his bed, his coat and scarf still on. Maybe in half an hour or so, his mother would return. She and John would tag-team to make a generic dinner of meatloaf, broccoli, and mashed potatoes. Then they would watch the evening news together, or one of them would help Greg with his homework. Wirt would be expected to unpack and repack the dishwasher, take out the trash, and then ask if anything else needed to be done before he could go back to his room and do homework. But for the time being, all he could think about was Sarah, particularly, the walk back with Sarah. A warmth spread throughout his body. Today, despite its omens, was actually an amazing day. And, little, did he suspect, it was hardly the beginning. Far from Wirt and his family, far from the town, far from the garden wall, with the sun disappearing beneath the horizon, the nighttime slowly blankets the landscape and trees. Alone, perched upon a single tree branch high above the ground, a bluebird sang its melancholy, nearly inaudible tune. Hours after the sun departed the sky, it stopped its melody and became a part of the night. Even farther from the music, a shadow strode between the trees, basking in the settled, icy air. Chapter 3, A Decision a week had passed since the Thursday afternoon with Sarah. Wirt tried his best to talk more with her whenever he could, in between classes, just before and after English class, and if he ever saw her when the school day ended. It was more difficult than he thought because their schedules did not coincide very well, but he managed to make it work in a few days. When they did speak, it was usually a short talk, no longer than six minutes. Progress, Wirt, progress, he repeated to himself every time he had a chance to talk to her. It was at some point earlier in the week when Wirt had decided that he needed to do something big for Sarah, something that could prove just how much he liked her. But it was hard to judge what exactly he could do. 
Sarah was not a materialistic person, and it was not as if he had the money to buy her anything special. He thought of writing her a poem, but he was not comfortable with sharing that part of his life with anyone quite yet. Reciting a poem. Maybe. Not his words, just his voice. It sounded less intimidating than his original work. He could make her mixtape, possibly. Something she could listen to when he was not in her presence. It would be less scary, possibly. And maybe he could record himself playing the clarinet. If he had no other ideas, he would probably do that. Sarah would like it, possibly. The day before Halloween fell on a Friday, and Wirt gathered from his accidental eavesdropping, it was going to be a major deal for his fellow high schoolers. Wirt's high school was not only having a big football game, but after parties and Halloween parties would pop up throughout the town. Would that be a good day to give Sarah his gift? She was the school mascot, so she would be at the game, but maybe after, before she went to a party. Sarah would definitely be invited to one of them. Wirt knew just how awful he was when it came to wooing a girl, mostly because had never done it before. When was the right time to do so? How? But he did not want to ask for his mother's advice, and definitely not his stepfather's. That Wednesday, Wirt gave himself an ultimatum, make the mixtape for Sarah and give it to her that Friday, or just forget about his feelings towards her. He was not a particularly decisive person, but he had to do this. Rumor had it that Jason Funderburker was going to ask out Sarah, and Wirt had to get to Sarah before that jerk. Wirt spent his entire Wednesday afternoon making the mixtape for Sarah, alternating between reciting poems and playing his clarinet. When he finished, he labeled it for Sarah. Friday after the game, he thought. He stuffed the mixtape in back of his desk drawer, temporarily, out of sight, out of mind. Hopefully Greg would not come barging into his room and rummage through his things. Hopefully his mother would not go snooping and come across it, not that she was a snooper, but Wirt had to be careful. And his stepfather was smart enough to never come into Wirt's room, ever. It was at dinner that same evening when his mother broke the news. We'll be going out of town for a week or so, she said. Your grandmother isn't doing very well right now, and Uncle Robert would like me to help out with taking care of her in the meantime until things get better. Hooray! To grandmas. Greg cheered, either ignoring or unaware of what their mother had just told them. Wait, all of us. Word asked. We all have to go. No, no, his mother continued. I don't want the two of you to miss a week of school, so you'll be staying home. We're not getting a babysitter, though. You're old enough to take care of yourself and Greg for just a week. We'll be leaving Friday afternoon as soon as we both get off work, and we'll probably only get back the next Saturday morning or so. Wirt grunted. He would have to take care of Greg for an entire week. And they were leaving Friday afternoon, he would be babysitting Greg when he was supposed to give Sarah her mixtape. Greg would embarrass him in front of her, maybe even all of her friends. He put up a face to appear as though he was okay with this arrangement, and kept quiet throughout the dinner. Why did they have to leave Greg with him? He was only in the second grade, it was not as if he would miss a ton of work that would need to be made up. It's just a setback, Wirt tried to reassure himself while he was in his bed. He already had the mixtape made and labeled. He had to give it to Sarah, regardless of Greg's presence mucking everything up. That Friday, after saying goodbye to his mother and John, Wirt returned to his room. Greg followed him. It's Halloween, Wirt. The day before Halloween, Wirt corrected. Who cares? It's Halloween. Greg continued. What are we going to do today, huh? 
I was thinking of going around the town to get candy. No one is passing candy out tonight, Wirt muttered. And I'm going to the game at my school. A game. Oh that's fun. Can I come? Wirt sighed. He could not exactly say no, although he was hoping to drop Greg off at his next-door neighbor's house for an hour or two. Okay, fine, he responded. Yay. Greg hailed, then brought his hands to his face. Oh my gosh. I don't even have a costume. Off to make a costume, he ran out of Wirt's room. Wirt gave another sigh, this time of relief. Just a few more hours until the game, and then he could see Sarah. Greg returned roughly half an hour later, a tea kettle upside down on his head. What's with the hat? Wirt asked. I'm an elephant. Greg praised himself, pointing to the kettle's spout. Nay. Elephants don't nay, Wirt stated. What's your costume? It's not Halloween. Yes it is. You need a costume. Don't worry. I know what you can wear. Greg left the room once more. Wirt wondered what exactly a seven-year-old would conjure up for him to wear as a costume. Within another ten minutes or so, Greg entered the room with a tall, pointy red hat and an old, navy blue cape. Wirt could only assume the cape was a part of John's Union soldier uniform that he wore on his occasional reenacting trips. Here you go. Greg tossed the cape on the bed and placed the hat on Wirt's head, ask you. What am I supposed to be? A wizard, duh, Greg made a face. Wirt felt stupid as he draped the cape over his shoulders and fastened the buttons in the front, but he knew it was pointless to not wear it. Otherwise, Greg would be badgering him for the rest of the night, and that was one of the many Gregisms that Wirt did not need to deal with at the moment. Greg stepped back to admire his handiwork. Tada! Wizard Wirt! Wirt! Wirt rolled his eyes. At the game, Wirt paid for the tickets for himself and Greg. They took a spot as close to the exit as possible, far from the band. The crowd littered the bleachers, everyone dressed in some kind of costume. Maybe Greg's last-minute costume was not such a bad idea after all, the few people who dressed in everyday clothing stuck out easily, and Wirt did not like to be noticed in such a way. This isn't a game. Greg commented. Where are the boards? And the pieces? Wirt did not even bother responding. He could see the mascot, Sarah, dancing and waving as she walked along the parallel of the football field. He considered waving to her, but realized that his gesture would have gotten lost in the sea of costumed spectators. He patted the mixtape in the pocket of his trousers, ensuring its safekeeping. Once more, his stomach twisted, a lump in his throat developing. Oh no. This was a terrible idea, right from the beginning. A terrible, stupid idea. He was not good at playing the clarinet, it was why he kept to himself and never took up John's suggestions to join the marching band. And reciting poetry was just as pathetic and writing his own. Wirt mentally kicked himself, upset that he thought he could win Sarah over when all she would do was just laugh at him as soon as she heard the mixtape. He should have begged his mother to take him out of town, even if it was to take care of his grandmother. That way. He would not have to face Sarah and her friends for a whole week, and when he came back, he would be too busy completing the missed homework for him to ever see her. Instead, he was now on the bleachers with his annoying half-brother. Maybe he could just avoid Sarah for the rest of night and not give her the mixtape. Then he could properly dispose of it, trash it, rip out the tape, burn it, so many different options. She would never have to know about it. 
Wirt also realized why he never came to the football games, the crowds made him claustrophobic, and the noise caused his ears to ring for hours afterwards. At least he and Greg were sitting in an area with fewer people, most of the spectators were congregated around the halfway marker. Hi Wirt. The mascot was standing in front of him. So much for blending in. Hi. Greg replied to him. You can talk. Oh that's so cool. Sarah laughed, then took her uniform's head off and tucked it underneath her arm. I didn't know you'd be here tonight, she said to Wirt. He was unsure of how to respond to that. Are you allowed to be up here, he sputtered. Oh, yeah, it's part of the job, Sarah answered. Interact with the spectators once in a while, get them pumped. There it was, her natural smile. Are you going to Hannah Colton's party afterwards? Um, uh. A party. Oh boy. Wirt we should go. Greg took over for him. Wirt wanted to smack Greg quiet, but restrained himself. Sarah was in front of him, he had to be on his best behavior. Ah, uh, why yeah, yeah I'm going, he murmured with a lack of confidence. Sarah did not seem to notice. Okay, well I'll see you there. She popped her mascot head back on hers and waved goodbye. Bye Greg. Greg furiously shook his hand back and forth. We're going to a party, he then clapped. Wirt's shoulders shrunk as far as they could. He wanted to disappear under the bleachers, but it was probably for the best that he did not. Hannah Colton's house was a 20-minute walk in the opposite direction of Wirt and Greg's house. Wirt was not sure how attending a party would be, considering two factors, one, he had never been to one, and although he had heard stories of what happened at these kinds of parties, he was still uncertain of what actually went on. Two, he had his seven-year-old half-brother to look after, and that was already a recipe for disaster. He did not have to go to Hannah Colton's party. He could back out, and take Greg straight home and call it a night. But Sarah's words hung around him, I'll see you there. She was expecting him. That was a good sign, right? Maybe he could give her the mixtape after all. Party music blasted from the house, quiet enough so that passersby could barely hear from the sidewalk, but loud enough to fill the crowded atmosphere and drown out conversations. As soon as Wirt stepped in, after taking a hold of Greg's hand, he was not going to let Greg wander around a house with alcohol being consumed by high school students, he saw a few people he recognized. Oh hey, Wirt's here, called out Kevin, a boy with whom Wirt shared geometry. How's it going? Ah, good, I guess, Wirt replied. I is, is Sarah around? Sarah, asked Kevin. Maybe. I don't know what she's dressed as. What are you anyways? He's a wizard. He's a wizard. Greg chimed in. Kevin studied word from the tip of the hat to his shoes. Really? You look more like a garden gnome. Hey, yeah, Word politely answered. Well, I guess I'll see you later then. Yes, see you around, Kevin hollered over his shoulder as he turned around to talk to some other students walking in the door. Wirt walked through the throng of people, making his way into the living room. Someone he had never seen before, most likely a senior, handed him a red plastic cup without a second thought, almost automatically. Wirt took it, at first dazed as to what he would do with it. Greg remained at his side, taking in the sights. Wow. This party is insane, he hollered, but Wirt could only guess that was what Greg actually said. Hey Wirt, called a familiar voice. It was not Sarah, it was Jenny the Junior. Oh, hey Jenny, he greeted. 
Is Sarah here? Not yet, she's on her way, though. Why? I just wanted to say hi. Jenny did not question any further until she caught sight of Greg. Why'd you bring your brother to a house party? My parents are out of town, and I couldn't find another babysitter at the last minute, Wirt semi-lied. He won't cause trouble, not much, at least. No, it's cute. What are the two of you dressed as? I'm an elephant. Greg responded immediately, pointing to the spout once more. Jenny laughed. And Wirt is a wizard. Jenny stared at the cone above Wirt's head. Oh, I thought you were a gnome. Wirt gave a look of defeat, but Jenny did not pick up on it. Hey, there's some drinks in the kitchen. And some stuff for your brother. Thanks, Wirt said, but he doubted that Jenny the junior heard him when she strode past him. He pushed his way into the kitchen, Greg trailing along behind him, where there were fewer people standing about. He recognized none of them, but none of them paid attention to him or Greg. He stared at the bottles of alcohol littered about the countertops, strewn about were other non-alcoholic drinks like soda. He found an extra, clean cup and poured some of the soda into it for Greg to keep him occupied and quiet. Then he continued to stare at the alcohol in front of him, confused. Can't decide what to get, came Sarah's voice. Startled, Wirt jumped back. Every time. Why yeah, Wirt said, feigning certainty. Not sure what I'm in the mood for. I think I know of something you'd like, Sarah answered, taking his empty cup and pouring cranberry juice in it. She added a shot of vodka into the juice and lightly twirled the cup. Here you go. These are my favorites. Wirt took a sip of the concoction. He was unsure if he could taste the alcohol or not, but he had to admit that he enjoyed the taste. It was refreshing, not at all what he was expecting. He shoved away the reality that he was drinking alcohol, for the first time, at 15, and that Greg was in his presence. Hopefully Greg would not blab about this to their mother and his father, maybe. Wirt could promise to go frog searching if it meant Greg would keep quiet. At least Greg did not tell stories to get others in trouble. He was not a tattletale. His talkativeness was driven by sheer enthusiasm. It's pretty good, he told Sarah, the corners of his lips turning slightly upwards. She smiled at him. The hair on the back of Wirt's neck stood up. Is it cool if I hang in here with you? I'm kind of beat right now, and I need a break before I play some party games. She was beginning to make herself a cranberry vodka drink. Yeah, sure, Wirt said without thinking. He could not believe it. He was drinking alcohol with Sarah, and they were alone, Greg did not count at this moment, he was somehow still occupied with his soda. And so they talked, nothing deep, nothing that would embarrass Wirt, but a talk that made Wirt's insides gooey and fluttery. He could not remember the last time he was this mushy. Not even walking back to his street with her a week ago compared to what he felt right now. Can I have more soda? Greg asked. Wirt instantaneously refilled Greg's cup, and Greg went about drinking it. Maybe it was not such a good idea to give his hyperactive brother two full cups of sugary soda this late at night, but he was willing to deal with the repercussions if it meant talking to Sarah alone, at a party. Hey, you know how we saw the garden wall when we were walking together last week? Sarah inquired. Wirt nodded, wondering where she was going with this. Well, I tried to climb it again. Wirt's eyes widened. Yeah, I know. I went to the cemetery last Saturday night with a few people, you know, just to hang out and stuff, and I tried to climb again. What happened? Oh, nothing really. 
I made it to the top and I sat on the edge, but I couldn't see anything because it was so dark. A part of me wanted to go down to the other side, you know, to finish that dare from 7th grade or whatever, but everyone was begging for me to come down and I was pretty cold. Maybe it was the alcohol in his system, or maybe it was his total admiration for her, but Wirt was in absolute awe with her story. One afternoon earlier in the week, when he went grocery shopping with his mother, he saw the garden wall in the corner of his eye. It reminded him of Sarah, and how much she was intrigued with it, even if he was not. To hear that she had climbed to the top twice was a feat he did not know anyone else who had tried to climb it, let alone get to the top. I still want to know why everyone warns us about it, Sarah continued, snapping word out of his trance. I'm pretty sure it's just some old wives' tale to prevent kids from wandering off and getting lost and kidnapped or whatever, but I want to know what's out there. Just see what's on the other side. Maybe get something from the other side, just to say, hey world. I've crossed the garden wall and all I got was this stupid t-shirt. I get that, Wirt replied, sipping the last of his drink. A friend of Sarah's whom Wirt did not know tapped her on the shoulder and asked her to play one of the various party games going on. Do you want to come, Wirt? Sarah asked before heading out of the kitchen. Wirt glanced at Greg, still holding Wirt's hand, an empty soda cup in his other. I better take my brother home, he said. But it was n nice s seeing you. Okay, well I guess I'll see you Monday. Walking home with a soda amped Greg felt longer than it actually was. For remaining surprisingly quiet at the party, Greg was now bursting at the seams, running in front of Wirt and humming the same tune of the past few weeks continuously. Usually, Wirt would have asked him to be quiet, but the sensation he was currently feeling let the humming ball of energy slide. Another chance to talk to Sarah, alone. In her monster clown makeup, she was still undeniably pretty. Once they returned home, Wirt realized that tomorrow was Halloween, and he would be expected to take Greg trick-or-treating. For now, none of that mattered, though. Just getting to speak to Sarah was enough to mollify the tedious task of following Greg around as he received candy. After the exhausting method of getting Greg to finally go to bed, Wirt plummeted onto his own bed, returning to his conversation with Sarah, my heart slash is humming a tune slash I haven't heard in years. We went over every detail he could possibly remember, every little piece of information that transpired between them in chronological order. He smiled goofily to the ceiling. Maybe he should have given her his mixtape. Sarah was too nice of a person to laugh at him for making it. Maybe next time he would give it to her. Or maybe it was not enough. What could he do that was meaningful yet simple? Was there anything in their conversation that he could use to create such a gesture? He ran through the conversation one more time. But I want to know what's out there. Just see what's on the other side. Maybe get something from the other side. Wirt shot up from his bed. That was it. He knew what to do that would win Sarah over. He would bring her something wonderful. He was going to cross the garden wall. In a small shack, a man sat alone, staring outside his window pane into the darkness, the soft shadow of tree canopies lining the starry sky. Many of the leaves were gone, but several remained at the top. A light breeze would occasionally drift by, letting some of those leaves leisurely tumble to the ground. The shack was warmed with a fire, but the warmth quickly dissipated and was replaced with a sharp chill. The man pressed his lips together, hoping that it was not what he thought it was. You do not seem pleased, my friend, said the voice, deep and bellowing, as if it could read his thoughts. I have always been indifferent to your presence, the man responded coolly, his eyes still upon the darkened scene of the window before him. 
Yes, well, I am not here for the reasons you think, the voice continued. I have come to say that I think it will happen soon. The man jerked his head. It? You mean? Yes, my friend. Oh, it has been too long since the last occurrence. But I can sense that we should be getting ready for it. It's coming soon, my friend, sooner than either of us think. How will you know? I always know, the voice snapped, then drifted out of the shack without even a goodbye, the lingering chill remaining for hours after its departure. Tonight, there was no bluebird song. Chapter 4, Beyond Trick-or-treating for Greg began at 5 o'clock p.m., when the sun was still out and barely setting. Come on word, the boy bounced as soon as the clocks in the house struck five. He wore the exact same outfit as the day before, with the upside-down teapot placed upon his head. Yeah, yeah, okay, Wirt grumbled, taking his set of keys off the key hooks in the kitchen. Where's your costume? Greg asked. It's Halloween. You have to wear your costume. Wizard the wizard. Defeated, Wirt went into his room to put on the cape and hat that Greg now designated as his costume. He returned to the front entrance of the house. Greg clapped his hands and smiled. Yay. Now we can really go trick-or-treating. Wirt locked the door behind them, with Greg darting far ahead of him before Wirt could even step off the doormat. Don't wander too far. Wirt hollered to his younger half-brother, but it was likely that Greg did not hear him. He was too busy developing his own path and stopping at any houses he deemed appropriate enough to retrieve candy. Somehow, it was still surprising that Greg was unpredictable and could not follow a simple pattern. He tagged along behind his brother, hands shoved in his trousers' pockets. He twiddled his fingers around a long string of red yarn that was in his right pocket for some indiscernible reason, probably a recent class project, but Wirt could not recall what project that would have been. It was rather warm for Halloween, especially in comparison to the icy rain from the previous week. The woolen blue cape, large and billowing around Wirt's shoulders and small frame was an excellent heat insulator. With the sun still suspended in the sky, he could feel sweat developing underneath his arms, but he was more preoccupied with why Greg was stuffing the candy he received in his shorts. Why didn't you bring a pillow sack, or a plastic bag? Because then I'd have to hold it, duh, Greg retorted matter-of-factly. Candy in the pants means a hands-free Greg. Wirt was also partly fascinated that the candy was not escaping Greg's pants, but he then realized that the bottom of the short's legs cuffed to Greg's knees. The candy was trapped. At a certain point during the walk through town, Wirt must not have paid attention to exactly where Greg was roaming about. It was not until the elder brother saw the garden wall several yards ahead of him when he registered that he and Greg were rather far from their house. The sun was now beginning to dip beneath the horizon, but enough light was emanating from it that it did not feel too late. Wirt checked his wrist only to find that he had forgotten to put on his wristwatch. Probably 6.30 p.m. It could have been no later than 7 in the evening. Greg, maybe we ought to head more towards our house. We're kind of far and it'll take some time to get back. PSH no way, this is where the best candy is. Greg shouted over his shoulder. How Greg could possibly know that, Wirt had no idea, when Wirt was young enough to go trick-or-treating with Greg, their mother kept him within the boundaries of their neighborhood. Wirt sighed, knowing that getting Greg to start heading home was an impossible task. Maybe Greg would realize himself that there were fewer houses in the periphery of the town, few people liked living near the mysterious garden wall. The garden wall. Of course, he made that decision last night. 
cross the garden wall and bring back something for Sarah. The more he analyzed it, the more it sounded silly. What could he possibly bring back for Sarah to prove that he had seen the other side of the wall? A wildflower. A rock. And that was assuming that there would be anything on the other side worth taking. He could just give Sarah the mixtape he made for her. No need to climb a dumb wall that no one really knew about. Greg stopped at one of the houses on the corner of the street that he and Wirt had been walking on, receiving two or three lollipops that he promptly deposited into his shorts. Thank you, he gleefully accepted. Wirt waited at the fence of the house for Greg to return back to the street. As soon as Greg exited the fenced-in front yard of the house, he made a right turn. Wirt reluctantly yet dutifully followed suit. They were now walking parallel to the garden wall. I need to stop and count all my candy, Greg said after five minutes since the turn. Hey Wirt, is there a place we can stop so I can see how much candy I have? Can't you just do that back at the house? I need to know how much more candy I can get. Greg defended, turning his back on Wirt as a sign that he would not listen to any more of Wirt's less than subtle suggestions to go back home. Hey, I think I see a park. Before Wirt could even respond, Greg was running down the street. That's not a park. Wirt screamed as high as his lungs would let him. He chased after Greg, crossing the street and past the wrought iron gated entryway to the grassy patch that Greg had pointed out, but it definitely was not a park. Orderly rows and columns of tombstones scattered the area, with an occasional taller monument sticking out. It was the Eternal Garden Cemetery. Nightfall was encroaching, the remnants of sunlight just enough to illuminate the scene. Wirt scanned the cemetery for Greg. He found the seven-year-old boy propped against the trunk of the tall, wide tree adjacent to the garden wall. He was busily sorting out candy as he pulled individual pieces out of his pants. He was just in the beginning stages, the sorted piles on the grass before him were little. Greg, we should really go home now, Wirt pressed when he reached his brother. It's going to get dark pretty soon and we're on the outskirts of town. The boy did not reply, instead, he continued with taking inventory of his candy stock. Wirt furrowed his brow, but kept silent. His eyes traveled from Greg to the tree trunk, his gaze going upwards with the tree. It was several feet taller than the garden wall. He was not much of a tree climber, but maybe he could climb it just to see the other side of the wall, after all, Greg was going to take a while with his crucial task of counting candy. Then he could tell Sarah that he had been to the top of the wall, and they could talk even more. Yeah, that was okay. It took Wirt several minutes to make his way up the tree, with several scratches and slips. He stopped just at the point where the top of the wall and the tree met. He placed one foot on the top's base, then the other. A surge of victory spread throughout his body, success is counted sweetest slash by those who ne'er succeed slash to comprehend a nectar slash requires sore need, the kind that made adrenaline pump through his veins and forget about Greg at the base of the tree. Wirt gazed upon the secretive space beyond the wall. Even in the fading sunlight, he could see trees, miles and acres of trees. He positioned himself. Carefully so he was no longer standing, but sitting, legs dangling over the edge of the wall. He could stare at the trees all day, somehow, Wirt was utterly fixated on the forest just yards away from him. He was vaguely aware of Greg climbing the tree and taking a seat next to him. Whoa, came Greg's youthful wonder. For once, Greg's words resonated with Wirt. It was a beckoning, it had to be. Without even thinking, Wirt was descending down the wall, which was far less taken care of on this side in comparison to the smooth cemetery side, if Sarah and the others did not climb the tree adjacent to the wall, 
then Ward had difficulty understanding how they could have gotten to the top. The grass at the foot of the wall was thick, long, and matted from the growth and lack of care. Are we going on an adventure? Greg questioned as he himself scrambled to the bottom. Wirt did not answer, but it was quite possible. Maybe he could find something for Sarah after all. He and Greg cut through the empty meadow between the trees and the garden wall. He was too entranced with the forest ahead, calling to him, we are the trees slash our dark leafy glade slash bands the bright earth with softer mysteries. The daintiest of breezes beckoned him closer to the woods. Don't be afraid, it is soothing. The sun was gone, but that went unnoticed. Until it did. Wirt lost track of the time he and Greg had been wandering in the forest, and he had no wristwatch to look at for reference. Oh crap, he thought, and instantly all his worries returned, busting at the seams of his mind. It was nighttime, it was Halloween, and he and Greg were on the other side of the garden wall. The fun and games were over, they had to turn. Back now and climb over the wall once more, back into the eternal garden cemetery, and trek back to the house. They had to. He grasped Greg's hand and made a 180 turn. Hey! Greg exclaimed. We have to go back, Wirt declared adamantly, marching back in the direction that they had come from. Or at least, he thought that they had come from. But that proved to be quite the challenge. Approximately 20 minutes later, Wirt was certain that all he and Greg managed to do was wander even further into the thicket of trees that had hypnotized him earlier. All the trees were indistinguishable from each other, and he was not able to remember any potential landmarks that the two of them might have passed. Ugh, if only Greg had not stopped in the cemetery to count his candy. If only Greg had not decided to go trick-or-treating in the town periphery. I was leaving a candy trail, but I don't think it's helping, Greg piped up. I remember dropping my only pack of gummy bears and I think I saw them just now. Ward opened his mouth to let out a shut-up, Greg. Instead, a faint feminine voice from somewhere nearby spoke out instead. Help, it murmured. What, muttered Wirt. Who's there? Help, the voice repeated, this time louder, but not by much. Over here. It's coming from this way. Greg cried, pointing to the left of Wirt and darting in that direction. Wirt followed him. Please help me, continued the voice, slightly strained, but it did sound as if the two boys were closer. I'm right here, it mumbled, but Wirt could not see to whom it belonged. In the corner of his eye, Wirt could see Greg plunging his hands into one of the nearby bushes. Greg, don't do. Ah, you found me, said the voice. My wings are stuck on these thorns. Wirt could barely make out Greg fumbling his arms around in the bush, Wirt was too busy trying to process that sentence. Wings, he uttered mostly to himself, confused. Greg pulled back from the bush, his hands cupped in front of him. Wirt, look. Greg turned around to show his older brother what he was holding. Sitting prettily in the palms of his hands was a bird, a bluebird, from what Wirt could gather from the dim, white moonlight. Oh thank you, the bluebird chirped. I've been stuck for too long, trying to wriggle out of that bush, but I think I've hurt one of my wings in the process. The bird attempted to lift its right wing, but was unable to spread it fully. Oof, yeah, that sprained all right. Aye, I must be dreaming, Wirt said, deadpan. He rubbed his eyes. Of course. He was dreaming, the talking bird proved it. He would wake up any second in his bed at home. Just any second now. Just any, second, now. What? 
Do birds not talk about where you come from? asked the bluebird, clearly offended by his statement. Wirt matched and pressed his fingers together. Well, actually, no, they don't. Animals don't talk at all. Humph, the bird scoffed before looking up at Greg. Thank you again. I guess I owe you a favor in return, but I. You grant wishes. Greg's eyes grew wide. Ah, uh, no, the bluebird responded. Greg did not seem to notice. Oh boy. I wish to be turned into a tiger. I don't. Don't waste your breath, Wirt interrupted. Just let him have it. He hoped he was imagining that the bird was sighing in defeat. So what are the two of you doing out here alone, inquired the bird. Most people never come to this part of the woods, especially this late at night. Never know what could snatch you up. I, well, we, wait a second, I'm not justifying myself to a bird. I have a name, snapped the bluebird. Birds have names. Yes, and mine is Beatrice. Hi Beatrice. Greg chimed in, bringing Beatrice the bluebird close to his face. My name is Greg, and he's Wirt. He's my older brother. Beatrice the bluebird glanced up at Wirt. Wirt. What kind of name is that, she asked flatly. It's my name, Wirt fired back. Oh, come on, I'm talking with a bird. I have to be dreaming. He pinched himself as hard as he could. Newsflash, Wirt, you aren't dreaming. I'm as real as you and your brother are. He wanted to argue with the surprisingly feisty bird, but that would only be more ridiculous. In addition, he was slowly realizing that Beatrice the bluebird was right, this was not a dream, but he was not going to verbalize that to a bluebird. We're trying to go home, Greg broke the silence, seemingly unaware of the tension between the bird he held in his hands and his older brother standing in front of them. Do you know the way back to that wall? W, wait, what? You two came from over the garden wall. Yeah, why? Is that a bad thing? No, Beatrice responded, albeit suspiciously, but it's been a while since anyone crossed that thing. Can you help us get back? Wirt requested, choosing to ignore Beatrice's hesitancy. If a talking bird could exist, then maybe it could guide them back. But then another thought crossed his mind. Bizarre, yes, but so was a talking bird. If only he had something that would. I guess that's how I can repay you, said Beatrice. But it's a favor for Greg, not, hey, what are you doing? Wirt was tying the red strand of yarn from his pocket tightly around one of Beatrice's legs. He tightened the knot firmly enough so that it could not come undone, but it would not hurt the thin bird leg. What is this? Beatrice demanded. What am I, your prisoner? You're not a prisoner, Wirt answered. Oh, are we keeping Beatrice as a pet? Greg butted in before he could finish. I'm not. No, Wirt interrupted. You're my gift to a friend. Must be some special kind of friend for you two, Beatrice immediately cut herself off. Oh, it's not just any friend. This is the romantic kind of friend. Wirt wanted to rebuff the bird held in Greg's hand, but he knew it was futile. His cheeks and the tips of his ears were hot, presumably as red as the yarn around Beatrice's leg. He tied the other end to his wrist. Because nothing says love like an injured, talking bluebird. Beatrice taunted, sarcasm dripping with every inflection. Will you just lead us back to the wall, please? Wirt barked. Why should I? 
you've already taken me in custody. Well you're going to go wherever I go, so you might as well just take us back. And you kind of owe Greg a favor. The bird glared at Wart. Yeah, for him, not for you, Wart. And this, the bird lifted its yarn-tied leg, this is not a favor. This is captivity. Ah, you're so cute when you go all puffy. Greg complimented. Several seconds of silence settled between the three. Wirt locked his eyes with the beady black ones of the bird in Greg's cupped hands. Ugh, fine. But I'll tell you right now that this nighttime won't do us much good. It's best if we wait until the morning to get a move on. Morning. Wirt repeated in disbelief. NNN no, you don't understand. We have to get home as soon as possible. Our next door neighbor checks in on us every night and when he sees that we aren't at the house, he'll call our mom and then report us as missing. Well, you don't understand. Considering where we are, you two were wandering around more than you think. We'll only get more lost among these trees at night. So you better just wait until morning and get some sleep. Are we camping tonight? Greg questioned ecstatically. Hooray! I've never been camping before. He bounced away, Beatrice still in his hands, to settle against one of the wider, heftier trees. Wirt followed to keep up with the red, woolen link between him and the talking bluebird, grumbling to himself. Stupid bird. He took a seat next to Greg and glanced up at the shadow canopy of the trees. No longer did they enthrall him, he still could not understand the sensation that had burned within him when he was at the top of the wall, when he was crossing the open meadow towards the trees. These trees were now foreboding, with an eeriness that sent the hairs on his neck standing straight up. From the soft glow of the moonlight bearing on one of the tree trunks ahead of him, Wirt could see that it was different from most of the other trees surrounding it. It was more knotted than others, with hollows and twisted bark that, in the moonlight, resembled a face, if he stared at the configuration long enough. Another sharp shiver went up his spine, I need not breathe slash to bring such thoughts to me slash but still it whispered lowly slash how dark the woods will be. Wirt took off the red hat he had been wearing and placed it on his lap. He closed his eyes, ignoring Greg's tenderly lullaby. This had to be a dream. When? We woke up in the morning, he would not be on the ground in a forest, but underneath his layers of blankets and flat against his mattress. There would be no talking bluebird, let alone a talking bluebird who would give him sass. He drifted off to sleep faster than he had anticipated. The men stepped outside of his shack, holding an oil lantern in his hand. Another chilly night, it would seem, despite the warm weather from earlier in the day. All he needed was to gather some of the firewood for the dying fire he made a few hours before. Five minutes, tops, outside to pick out a few pieces and head back inside. At the pile of firewood, the sudden burst of wind informed him of its presence. It has happened, my friend. What we have been waiting for is already in place. When the men turned around, it was already gone. Chapter 5, A Day in the Woods Hey Wart, wake up. It's Wart, mumbled Wart, shifting to his left side, not opening his eyes. Well, wake up anyways. I'm assuming you're hungry and I know what you can forage around these parts, but you and I are unfortunately tied together. MMPH, Wart groaned. Just a few more seconds, Beatrice. His eyes shot wide open. The bluebird was obscenely close to his face, and he was outside. He was supposed to be in his room, not here, over the garden wall and lost in the woods, with a talking bluebird and Greg. Wirt shot up to his feet. Where's Greg? 
I sent him looking for some berries for the two of you to eat, Beatrice stated. Man, but that kid is the biggest ball of energy I have ever seen. Yeah, try living with him, Wirt grumbled, standing up from the base of the tree and dusting off his clothes and cape. He placed the hat atop his head, though he was uncertain why he felt the need to do so. Um, forgetting something? Beatrice asked. He looked down to see the bluebird still on the ground, somehow managing to give him a disapproving look, in the best way that a bird could give such a glare, Wirt still had difficulty comprehending that a bird was talking to him. I can't fly. My wing is sprained, remember? And you're forcibly taking me with you, so. Wirt resisted the urge to scoff, instead reaching down to pick her up and place her on his shoulder. The yarn connecting them draped around his shoulder and in front of him. Southwest is Greg close by. You can't trust him by himself for too long. Don't worry, he's not too far. I sent him off just before I woke you up. Now whether or not he'll actually find the right berries is a whole different matter. As Beatrice had estimated, after a brisk walk that was barely even five minutes long, the two of them found Greg sitting next to a bush, picking at swollen, oval-shaped red fruits. He had a pile of the fruits on his lap, and, judging by the smears of red around his mouth, a few in his mouth. Verts. Strish, he mumbled through his mouthful of the fruit, a large smile on his face once he caught sight of Wirt and Beatrice. HR, he picked a few of the fruits up from his lap and outstretched his hand to Wirt. Their rose hips, Beatrice chirped in Wirt's ear. Clearly, she had noticed his hesitancy in accepting one of the fruits. And these are edible. I used to, Beatrice abruptly cut off and hesitated before she continued, I used to see people pick these and make other things that they eat, like jam or pies. Wirt raised an eyebrow. And you, don't see any of that anymore. Not many people come out to this part of the woods, at least not in the past few years, the bluebird replied. You two are the first I've come across in weeks, and you're two kids from the other side who don't know any better. Wirt took offense to that last statement, but he knew he could not argue with its truth. He begrudgingly grabbed one of the rose hips and nibbled on it. It was a taste never experienced before, unique and almost floral, not overly sweet, and almost bitter, but not overwhelmingly so. He crouched down next to Greg so he could help pick several more of the bright red rose hips. Aren't you going to eat anything, Beatrice, asked Greg after the bush was plucked free of rose hips and distributed between the brothers. There were some maggots I got to eat while you two were sleeping, the bird remarked. I'm set. M maggots were near where we were sleeping. Wirt nervously asked, attempting to discreetly check himself for any white, wiggling larva. I ate them all, Beatrice responded, deadpan. And you're out in the woods, you can't worry about cleanliness right now. Wirt folded his arms across his chest. In the corner of his eye, he saw Greg putting his hand down his pants. Greg. You can't stuff everything down your pants. But candy, Wirt. Greg explained happily, a handful of assorted bite-sized candies in his palm extended to Wirt. We won't go too hungry. Does he? Aha, uh -huh, Wirt interrupted before Beatrice could even finish. From the candy that Greg was offering, Wirt chose a, squished, square of chocolate. He unwrapped it and pushed it into his mouth, pretending that the candy had not been down Greg's pants for over twelve hours. The bird on Wirt's shoulder repositioned her feet. Okay, enough dilly-dallying. If you want to make it back to the garden wall before sunset, we have to leave now. Sunset. How far are we? The both of you wandered farther than you think, 
Beatrice answered straightforwardly. Yeah, this is technically the outskirts of the woods, but the outskirts are pretty thick. The town closest to the garden wall isn't for another dozen miles. Wirt moaned. Well, up and at M. Greg exclaimed, standing up and patting Wirt's free shoulder. This had to be a dream. He was not only taking directions from a talking bluebird, but also from Greg. And that's how we got over here. Greg finished explaining. That's it. Beatrice asked in disbelief. Wirt shrugged. It's not the most riveting story. It's no Odyssey or Ulysses. What? He pretended not to hear Beatrice's remark. He and Greg had been walking for several hours now. The sun was directly above, he could assume that it was close to noon. Compared to yesterday's rather warm weather, today was more akin to what mid-autumn was meant to feel like, a strangely inviting kind of chilly. After leaving the rose-hit bush, Beatrice sent them in one direction, once in a while breaking Greg's stream-of-consciousness ramblings to point out a turn. Okay, we'll be on this stretch for a while, she had said at the last turn. Might as well tell some stories to pass the time. So Greg went into how he and Wirt crossed the garden wall. And that's supposed to be a wizard costume. You look like a gnome, Beatrice added after Wirt's comment. Wirt steamed silently, for a costume that he had not picked out for himself, he admitted to being weirdly defensive of being mistaken for a gnome when he was meant to be a wizard. Whiz with the wizard. I sound like Greg. Anything else you want to know, asked Wirt apathetically. Not really, said the bird. Oh, wait, no, tell me about this person you're giving me to. What? Yeah. Remember, I'm a gift for this girl. Or boy. Wirt hoped that birds could not pick up on blushing. She's a girl. Okay, well tell me about her. Why should I? I mean, you're taking me to her. I'm going to be her gift, aren't I? Her pet. I ought to know something about her. You know, will she take care of me? Is she kind? What does she look like? Wirt kept quiet. Beatrice had a fair point, but he did not wish to speak about his infatuation for Sarah to anyone, let alone to a talking bluebird that he was gifting to her. She goes to school with me, he began, and, she's nice. If birds could snort, then this was the opportune time. You say that as if she isn't. She is. Wirt argued, his cheeks growing even hotter than just seconds before. She really is. I just don't want to talk about it, okay. You'll meet her and you'll like her, I promise. Yeah, whatever, Beatrice mumbled, Wirt could practically hear the eye rolling, though he was still uncertain if that was something birds could do. Maybe it was strictly a characteristic akin to talking birds. In front of them, Greg stopped in his tracks Wirt barely managed to avoid running into the back of his younger half-brother. What now, Greg, he groaned. I'm hungry. Don't you have candy in your pants? Wirt mentioned. Greg clearly ignored this statement. Is there something here we can eat, Beatrice? The bird darted her head around. There might be some nuts or another rosehip bush along the way, but we'll have to carry on. I don't see anything right now. Word heeded Beatrice's direction, he heard Greg heave a disapproving sigh before his little feet scurried to meet up with his older brother and the bluebird settled on his shoulder. Word glanced at several of the trees ahead of them. A few, speckled within the others, were similar to the one he noticed the previous night. Hey, Beatrice, what kind of trees are those? Which ones? The ones that look like they have faces. Oh. B. 
Beatrice paused. They're Edelwood trees. They, they're just a different species of tree. I've never heard of Edelwood, Wirt thought aloud, but then again, he never heard of Rose Hips before, and botany was not his forte. Why are there less of the Edelwoods than the other trees? They get cut down a lot, Beatrice responded without hesitation. You know, they make good lumber for building homes and whatnot. Wirt chose to believe the talking bird. It was another hour or so when his own stomach audibly howled for food. Greg, can I have some of your candy? Sure thing. Greg pulled another handful of candy from his pants and passed it to Wirt. Crushed chocolates and a broken lollipop, but some of the hard candies were still intact. He opened the hard fruit candies and jumbled them in his mouth. Not the most substantial, filling food available, surprisingly, the amount of rose hips he had eaten for breakfast kept him full for some time, but it would tie him over for a few minutes until Beatrice could point out another edible wild berry bush or any nuts. Are we going the right way? he asked after swallowing his sugary snack. I don't remember any of this. Do you remember this, Greg? Nope. Of course you don't, Beatrice snapped. The two of you were wandering around at night, and I'll say it again, you went farther than you think. Everything is going to look the same at night, no matter how great your eyesight is. Don't worry, we're on the path. Hey, tell us about yourself. Greg piped up, addressing Beatrice. What's it like to be a bird? And how can you talk? Wirt added. I'm still not convinced that this isn't one of those really vivid crazy dreams. But Beatrice was not one for many words. Things are different on this side of the garden wall, she responded coolly, as if that was enough explanation. There's a reason that wall separates you from me. That doesn't. Wirt began. He wanted to finish with, answer my question, but decided to drop the subject. Judging from the tone in Beatrice's voice, maybe it was best that he and Greg remained blissfully unaware of what Beatrice meant. Then they could return home and put everything behind them. And Beatrice's abilities could be a secret between him, Greg, and Sarah. Being a bird is fine, Beatrice continued, her voice absent of the ambiguous, ominous warning from before. I can fly, which is pretty great. Freedom and all that hullabaloo. Greg clapped his hands. I wanna be a tiger. That'd be so cool. All big and strong and fast, and pretty. Tiger stripes are really pretty. Greg has a fascination with tigers, was the best that Wirt could explain. Beatrice made a noise that could only be a bird's equivalent to a single chuckle. I've noticed. Do you want to be that type of animal? Me. No, I like having opposable thumbs, Wirt said, flexing his fingers, his thumbs encircling each other. Several minutes went by in silence, save for the rumbling of Greg and Wirt's hungry stomachs. You know, I think there's a black walnut tree just a few yards ahead. Those will satisfy some of that hunger, Beatrice recited. Within five minutes, she ordered them to stop at one of the trees with yellowing leaves. We have to climb for these. Wirt complained. I can't fly and pick them for you, Beatrice retorted. Sprained wing here. And it's not too far of a climb, definitely shorter than going up that garden wall. I can see some walnuts. Wirt looked up. Despite the golden leaves, a multitude of miniature green globes and clumps were dispersed on the branches. Before Wirt could even bring himself to just a few inches off of the ground, clutching to the tree's trunk, Greg was already straddling the first thick branch from the ground, picking off the walnut clusters. 
Wirt, with Beatrice still on shoulder, made his way the same. Level as Greg and took a different, nearby branch. He had done more tree climbing, or any kind of climbing, in the past two days than he had when he was Greg's age. The nuts are inside the husks, Beatrice mentioned after several seconds of Wirt's inability to decipher how to open the walnut bunch he first picked off the branch. Wirt cracked one of the husks against the branch, using the fraction to separate the fleshy pod into two separate pieces. Inside, a dark brown walnut begged to be eaten. Another 30 minutes or so of eating as many black walnuts as they could, Wirt and Greg took half a dozen walnut clusters each for later. Wirt stuffed his in his pockets, some of the bulbs escaping out of the lip of the pockets but otherwise inside. Greg, as usual, put his walnuts in his pants. More than likely he was running out of candy, leaving plenty of space for the walnuts. Having candy and walnuts bunched around his legs could not be comfortable, but Greg never whined about it. They scrambled down the tree. Tummy's nice and full. Beatrice asked. Greg patted his belly. Absolutely. Lead the way, Princess Beatrice. I'm not a princess, Beatrice commented from Wirt's other shoulder, but she was less snappy about it. The sun was beginning to go down, and the garden wall was nowhere in sight. You said we'd make it by sunset, Wirt looked at the bluebird, his brows furrowed together. Well the sun is setting, and we're not near it. I probably misjudged how much time it's taking, Beatrice casually waved off. If we don't get there when the sun is totally gone, we can definitely make it in the morning. The morning. Wirt was not intending to spend another night on the other side of the garden wall. Tomorrow would be Monday, and if his neighbor had not already called his mother to inform her that her sons were not home, then the schools would definitely notify her of their absences. He panicked. I can't wait that long. I have to be in school, Anne, you promised we would get back by tonight. Excuse you. Beatrice hollered shrilly. You basically kidnap me and demand that I help you get back to the garden wall, and I'm kind enough to even go along with your shitty plan. Wirt fumed as Greg let out an O oh, in response to Beatrice's profanity. Shut up Greg, Wirt spat out. You should be thanking me for even helping you at all. Beatrice charged on. I could just not say a thing and let you lug me around, watching the two of you get even more lost and up for the. She closed her beak without a thought, almost as though she planned to close up and not say another word. The tension between the three was heavier than Wirt and Greg's mother's homemade chowders. Beatrice turned her little bird away from the glances of Wirt and Greg. Just, wait a little longer. If the garden wall isn't near in the next twenty minutes or so, then we can wake up early tomorrow and head over, okay? Her voice was stressed and taut. They walked in trepid silence for another thirty minutes or so. Wirt and Greg took a minor break to eat some of their walnuts and the last bit of Greg's candy as dinner. The sun and its remaining light were officially gone, and the darkness enveloped over them again. You can probably walk another two hours in the same direction, Beatrice dared to say. Wirt did not reply, and did as was advised. Ugh, Wirt, I'm tired, Greg mumbled, taking a seat at the base of a tree to rub his feet. Can we stop here for the night? Wirt's frustration wanted him to persist walking in hopes of getting as close to the wall as they could in the night, but his heavy eyelids and sore feet pleaded for him to collapse next to his brother. Fine, he answered, taking a seat next to Greg. He automatically lifted Beatrice off of his shoulder and plopped her on the ground in between them, then ate one more walnut. He was incredibly thirsty and yearned for just a sip of sweet, refreshing water, but pushed the thought aside. Tomorrow they would finally reach the garden wall, 
and then he could hand the stupid bird off to Sarah. Or maybe Sarah would not like having such a hot-headed, mean-spirited talking bird. He could show Beatrice and her unusual attribute to Sarah, and then set the bird free for good. But first, they had to reach their destination, tomorrow morning, when the sun rose, yet knowing how the way leads onto the way, slash I doubted if I should ever come back. Beatrice was uncertain how much time had passed before both Wirt and Greg fell asleep. Wirt was the quickest to drift off, his slight, occasional twitching, slowed breathing, and low snoring indicated to Beatrice that the eldest was unconscious within twenty minutes since he propped himself against the base of the tree. Greg, on the other hand, the one who was supposedly so tired, kept rolling around in an attempt to find a comfortable position. He muttered gibberish to himself as he did this, and occasionally Beatrice would see his eyes open, gazing up at the stars above. She started to count how long it would take for the boy to enter his slumber, but lost count somewhere around ninety. But then came the cyclical, reduced inhaling and exhaling, and Beatrice could finally relax. She still needed to wait, although its patterns were regular, she was bad at estimating time, especially with the amount it took for Greg to sleep, but at least she did not have to worry about it happening while one of the boys were alive. Perhaps it was another forty or fifty minutes before the rumblings inside Beatrice's stomach began, and it was not a pang of hunger. Thank God, Beatrice thought. With her limp and lame wing, she tried the best she could to wrap her wings around her front. The straining of her injured wing caused some discomfort in her right side, and a significant portion of her rosy orange chest was exposed to the autumn night's chill, but it did not matter. Beatrice could never describe exactly how it felt. It was painless, even now with her sprained wing. But even as she remained stationary, there was always a blast around her, as if she were sprinting in the air, windy or not, was brushing past her. On rare occasions, it was as if she were falling, tumbling so rapidly and so deeply and for so long until a sudden jerk startled her and brought her back to reality. That was how it felt tonight, the ground suddenly non-existent, herself curled into a ball, plummeting until an abrupt, piercing quiver ran up her spine. She opened her eyes. Her blue-feathered wings were replaced with human arms and hands. She brought the sprained arm to her side, the limb flopped on the ground. Human legs and feet restored. Beatrice pressed the palm of her right hand against her face. No beak, but a human nose, cheeks, and mouth. She let her fingers gently comb through her messy, tangled red hair. The bird-turned-human smiled. It was unfortunate that the two boys found her on one of the nights in which she was unable to transform. She did not anticipate a teenaged boy like Wirt taking her as prisoner, but it was a mere setback, though. Stall the two of them until the next night, and then make her escape once they were asleep and she was a human. Wirt, despite his stubbornness, was also rather easy to trick in. Misguiding. And Greg was just a little boy who followed his brother around, except when he did not. Instead of taking them closer to the garden wall, Beatrice directed them towards the nearest town, Pottsfield, a town she never visited herself but heard plenty about. That way, when she did escape in the night, she could run into town and find an inn to stay at for the night, sleep in a bed for the first time in, well, a while. Maybe even a doctor would treat her sprained arm. Beatrice stared at the red yarn tied around her ankle. Damn you, Wirt, she whispered. The knot was too minuscule for her to untie, even with two working hands, let alone one that could barely move thanks to her sprain. Her fingernails were too short for her to dig under the microscopic folds and pry open the knot. For a brief second, she considered cutting the circle around her ankle, but immediately realized that she did not have a knife, and more than likely neither of the boys did either. Would tearing the yarn work? With her sprain, it was hard to tug at the string. 
Damn it, Beatrice huffed. How could a stupid piece of yarn stand in her way of breaking free? If only she had her beak, then she could possibly see it apart. Wait a second. The girl looked around the tree that the two boys were sleeping against. In the darkness, it was hard to find what she was searching for with her eyes alone. Beatrice brought her left hand to the trunk of the tree, lining her fingers around the bark in hopes of a snag. After a minute or so, the tip of her index finger ran across a jagged edge, thick enough that it would not break off of the tree. It would be difficult, considering that the piece of tree bark, though not even two feet above the ground, was just barely in the range that Beatrice could bring the slack of the yarn to the edge. She would have to be careful in not waking up Word as she sawed the yarn, the back and forth motion tugged at Word's wrist if Beatrice sawed too vigorously. It was harder than she had thought, she still had to hold the yarn with both of her hands, and applying pressure to hold it in her feebly injured hand was rather agonizing. Better than Wirt. But the yarn itself was rather poor quality, cheaply made, she remembered these tidbits from her mother and grandmother. Using the tip of the bark, she was able to split the individual threads, and then saw them against the bark. Beatrice wondered why Wirt would have this in his pocket, but immediately forgot her concerns once the threads broke apart. Beatrice smiled. Yes, she whispered enthusiastically to herself. She pressed her left forearm against the tree trunk and struggled to stand on her feet. Her lame arm weighed her down, causing her to stumble and temporarily lose her balance before instinctively repositioning her feet and sprouting upwards. With nothing to sling her arm, Beatrice cupped her right elbow in her left palm and brought the sprained limb as close to her body as she could without causing too much strain. So long, Wart, she quietly grumbled to Wart. Her gaze fell upon the sleeping Greg. You're not so bad, she said to the sleeping boy. She stepped away and sped walked towards Pottsfield. She was on a deadline. Several yards away, the men watched the girl scramble away from the sleeping boys. How are they, my friend? Are you sure about them, asked the men. They are so young. You know youth has nothing to do with it, my friend. I can sense it the closer I get to them. The men glanced to his left. The shadowy being was behind one of the Edelwood trees, looking fondly at the two boys asleep against the tree. And a good thing the bird girl is gone, too. She posed no threat, in fact, she kind of helped my, our case, leading them closer to us. But she isn't important to what we need. What if she comes back? She won't. She's upset with the eldest boy. She's deserted them for good. The men brought his eyes back to the sleeping brothers. When do you? Not yet, the voice curtailed. It's too early. We must wait. Then the lantern stays with me, the men informed, pulling the oil lantern in his hand closer to his body, and walked away from the scene. 